Alright, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you March 22nd, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the issue of student debt. On the show, I have Sandy Leeds, a professor of finance at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Well, thanks, Dallas. So I'm breaking this discussion into two parts. So in part one, we'll cover some of the theories behind the growing student debt load, and then why student debt is such a looming problem. In the second part next week, we'll pick up where we left off and talk about what we all can do about student debt on an individual and societal level. Could you just introduce yourself for the audience? Sure. So as you said, I teach at the uh, University of Texas. I've been here for this is the end of my 16th year. I teach mostly MBAs and MSFs, but also starting to teach a fair amount of undergraduates as well. Before this, I was a lawyer and a money manager. Okay. So, Sandy, if you could just lead us off in terms of what is causing this problem. All right. So, why student debt has increased? So, student debt now is somewhere around $1.3 trillion. And you've got a lot of things that have led to this. And one is just the rising cost of education. That if you look at the cost of education relative to even healthcare, cost of education has risen faster. So education is becoming expensive. You know, we could talk a lot about why the cost of college has increased. There are all different reasons. And if you want to talk about that, just let me know and we can do that. But certainly that's a factor. You've got a lot of other things going on. Those students are, are staying in college for a lot longer period of time now. It's taking them longer to graduate. Part of the reason for this is it may be because of the cost of education that you have more students working during their studies, and so it takes them longer to graduate. Another huge problem that we have before we get to what I think is going to be the biggest problem is that we've got really low completion rates. And so depending on the type of school, if you look at public universities, you're looking probably on average about 60% of students who start end up graduating. Think about that. Those are people who borrowed money often for their first year or two and then didn't finish. And so it's unlikely that they're getting any premium in their wages, but they have the debt. And so that debt is really troublesome debt that it can't get paid off. So that's a problem. You've got, I'll sort of jump to what I think of as the biggest problem. The biggest problem with the student debt is the for-profit schools. What you're seeing with these for-profit schools is virtually all students are borrowing money. So it's a much higher percentage of students borrow money at the for-profit schools as opposed to the public universities or the private non-profit universities. And what's interesting, and when I started researching this stuff, I had no idea about this, but... The for-profit schools are more expensive. So you think about it as these for-profit schools are more expensive, meaning like than the public universities. And you're getting, I would argue, a much less valuable degree. And on average, I think that's an indisputable fact. You've got very low completion rates at these for-profit universities. And then even if you do graduate, you're not going to, on average, get much of a bump in salary. And so that has had a tremendous impact on the student debt problem. If you look at the percentage of students that are in for-profit schools, their percentage of the total debt outstanding is much, much greater than their percentage of students. 
it is a crazy, crazy problem. And I would tell you what we see is that they're really largely, and of course, you know, there are some good for-profit schools and that kind of thing. But by and large, these people are victimizing the weakest of society. The people who are coming from poor backgrounds with parents that didn't go to college, that don't know how all these universities work. And for people listening, I want to head something off that I've had people say when we talk about this, that, oh, sure, you're a college professor and these places are a threat to you. That's absurd. The idea that these for-profit schools are any type of a threat to the University of Texas is silly. And so this is a known fact. And I would say that you, know, you can look, there was a great, I think it was back in 2010, 2011, a Senate hearing all about these for-profit schools by 2012. But if you Google it with the Senate hearing on the for-profit schools, you can pull up a great 10-page summary about a lot of the findings of, of these schools. And basically, they have very few resources for the students. All their money goes to attracting students and helping them get loans that they then turn into profits for the school. So anyway, that's a lot said about that, but the for-profit schools are a huge problem. You've got other reasons why the debt numbers are growing. You've got more students, and of course they're borrowing more because the tuition has gone up. You've got debt that lasts a really long time period, and so it doesn't amortize quickly. You've got fewer parents that are able to help their kids. Obviously, a lot of people took a hit in 2007 through 2009, so they saw their 401k drop. A lot of people took money out at that point, exactly when they shouldn't have. It's easy to say with perfect hindsight, but they lost value in their home. So for years, you had parents that just weren't able to help. You also, if you think about it, real wages have barely increased over the last 15 to 20 years. And so think of tuition becoming so much more expensive and then realize that you've got parents that aren't making any more money in real terms and you're going to have a problem. And then final reason I'll mention is just a complete lack of knowledge about the financial decision that these young people are entering into. A lot of the people making the decisions are 18-year-olds who don't have a financial education yet. And so think about what's going on with these loans. They're just thinking about, do I have enough money to pay for college? And everyone's heard that college is good for you, but you're making these decisions. And the reality is they're not going to all work out. Not all degrees are as good and not all schools are as good as others. And so it's, it's not like I can just say, oh, you went to college, you're going to make this much money, right? I mean, if you go to, to a really well-known school, you're going to do better than a school that's not as highly ranked. And if you study something that correlates with profitable industries, you're going to make more money than a major that doesn't correlate with that. But people at 18, I mean, I think of myself at 18, and that's not the kind of stuff that we were thinking about. You're just thinking about, okay, I go to college. This is what I'm supposed to do. And so I think all those factors have led to people taking on more debt and being forced to take on more debt and then not being able to service that debt. Does that sort of answer the question? Yeah. Could we go into a little bit more on why you think the cost of school has gone up so quickly relative to other things in the economy? Yeah, I think that's such an interesting issue. And like most things, we don't know the answer. It's sort of like when you have the stock market goes up one day and people say, well, this is why it went up. Well, you know, we don't really actually know that. 
but we speculate. So I'll tell you some of the reasons why we think the cost of college has increased. The biggest, most widely accepted theory is what's known as the Bennett Hypothesis. And that is just the idea that the federal government has subsidized education with loans. And because students can access these loans, then schools raise prices. In other words, if you have the money to pay, I'll charge you. So that's the biggest reason. There are other theories, and, and probably there's a lot of truth in most all these reasons, but there's an increased number of administrators. And so if you think about it, what happens is you've got all these people who are not directly involved with the educational mission, and we're paying them decent-sized salaries. You've got increased amenities for students. I would say at UT, when I was a student here, we had this gym right across from the business school, Gregory Gym. And it was just a rat hole. It was where you went and played basketball. It was great. And then I got back here as a faculty member, and it's like a health club. It's really, really nice. It now has a really nice pool, and but just the resources are crazy. You can't have dorms without wireless now. We're all competing for these students, and we have to offer the same amenities as everyone else. And those amenities, I can say as someone who went to college in the mid-80s, those amenities have changed greatly. You've got an industry or a business with colleges that really has difficulty increasing their productivity. In other words, all you can do to make me more productive is you can fill my classroom. But once you fill my classroom, there's nothing you can do to make me more productive. The the one thing people will say that you can do is I could start teaching my classes online. Then we can reach a lot lot of other people. But the reality is that the residential experience for a college student is a lot of the education, right? If you were sitting in your parents' house just watching videos, that's great. You could certainly learn a lot. But... It's going out, living on your own, worrying about your laundry, paying your bills, socializing, networking, all those things that are a big part of that. So it's hard to make us more productive. You know, at all these schools, there's an emphasis on research rather than teaching. And I don't say that in a derogatory manner. I'm not a researcher. I'm a teacher. But research is where we get our rankings from. In other words, if you think about why schools are highly rated, it's because they have the biggest name researchers. And so what you're paying for are people who are conducting research during the day, not teaching. So we're paying for that. Well, who's paying for it? The students are paying for that. And they're getting the benefit of the higher-ranked school, but you're paying for that. I actually Um, was going to say, I remember during my program, we were given, quote-unquote, free iPads, and all the students were excited about that. And I was thinking, well, no, it's not free. We paid for it in our tuition. Absolutely, you paid for it. There's no question. I mean, I will say the whole theory of the iPad is just that then it is going to lower the cost of your textbooks. But my experience has been that it's really about 50-50 as far as students who like to read their textbooks online or on an iPad versus students who like to have that hard copy book and be able to underline it in that way and that type of thing. Some of the other things you see, you see less funding from states, right? States obviously went through a lot of problems, and most of the states are going through, are going to continue to have problems just because of their pension liabilities, that they're not getting the, the returns that they need in order to fund them. Other reasons why we've seen school tuition go up is just desire to signal quality. Right. If it's expensive, it must be a good school. And so first what you saw was 
you saw the private universities take their tuition up. And then it was like, well, they're really good. We know they're really good. We know the Ivy League's good. And we don't want to be seen as second tier. And so one of the ways we can signal that we're as good is by having higher tuition. And I should say about tuition that what you see with the schools is a model that they copied really from the airlines, and that's price discrimination. If you think about what airlines do, they try to charge business travelers more. And it's hard to say. They can't just say, are you a business traveler or are you a leisure traveler? So what they do is the way that business travelers often order their tickets is by doing it at the last minute. So if you do that, we'll charge you more. Well, universities are doing the same thing. In effect, we have this high stated tuition that sort of gets all this attention. But if you make below a certain level, you can pay less. And so when you look at statistics on tuition, you have to look at sort of the full stated tuition and then the net cost. And the net cost is often much less because people are getting some help from the schools. But you know, that's just a way of price discrimination. And, and what you see is people making above a certain level, I don't know what it is, let's call it 170 or, or something like that, they're going to pay full fare. And so a lot of people hear this and say, oh, 170 or 180 or whatever that number is, you're making a lot of money. And it's like people are making that much. Yes, they are making a lot of money compared to the median household income. But with that said, you have someone making $200,000 and paying $70,000 in after-tax dollars per year for college room and board at some of these schools. That is the great equalizer. They are no longer doing nearly as well. And so you, know, you see that. Another reason why schools are able to raise tuition is basically education, and I say this as a parent, and I agree with this, is seen as sort of an insurance policy for your kids, right? It's what we can do, what I can provide to my kids to help guarantee, and there's no guarantee, but to help guarantee, to help ensure that they will attain a middle-income lifestyle or, you know, hopefully better. And one final reason I'll throw in of why tuition is expensive is that a lot of schools are paying professors to teach remedial courses, just meaning that you've got higher paid university professors and they're teaching students who often aren't ready for the math classes that they're taking or some of the writing classes that they're taking in college. And so that's a high cost remedy. And so those are some of the theories. I'm sure there, there are more, but those are the ones that I thought about and read about. I tend to buy into what you first said about if almost anyone has access to government loans and it's like a cultural expectation that if you want to do well, you're going to go to college. And so I think the combination of the two between access to government loans almost indiscriminately and then the cultural norm of trying to go to college coupled together means you basically have inelastic demand regardless of the price. Absolutely. It is indiscriminate, too. I mean, it's basically like there is no underwriting process, right? We don't say, oh, well, you're going to have this major where people coming out of that make $20,000 a year and you're taking on $100,000 of debt to get that. And it makes no sense, right? I mean, we wouldn't lend like that, but we lend like that because ultimately it's the government and we don't want to say, look, this is a bad major. This is a, a good major. And so you do see that. And also, I think that there's some research that shows that people who are making these decisions when it's with borrowed money don't think about it in the same way because they just sort of think, well, this isn't going to be a problem until years from now. And it's different than I'm taking this money out of my bank account. 
Oh, definitely. I remember even hearing that with students that I knew where it's like, oh, okay, I have cash in the account from student loan, so I, like, I can burn it. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, it's a little bit scary. <laughs> Not quite the same thing, but I, I remember hearing stories, too, of students that were trying to learn about investing. They were trying to short-term trade in between semester bills. <laughs> so, <All right>. so, <laughs> probably a bad idea. <laughs> Yeah, I would say take out the probably, and yes, it is a bad idea. Well, okay, so that kind of leads us into the question of why is student debt such a big looming problem? All right, I'll start up this way, that for most people, it won't be a looming problem. Meaning, yes, you're going to owe more than you would have otherwise, but what we see is that the college premium is increasing. And by college premium, I just mean the amount that you make with a college degree compared to without one. So for most people, it's going to be something that is worth it to go to college. But I also know that if you tell me that the cost is going up and that real wages have been relatively stagnant, then it tells me it's going to be a benefit for fewer people than it used to be. And so we sort of have to start by saying, for most people, it's going to be good. And I would also argue for society, for our whole economy, it's good that people go to school. And most people are going to be able to handle this debt. It's going to be sort of like an additional car payment. And we know these people, though, with a college degree are better off. We know that not only their earnings higher, their unemployment rate is lower. Far fewer people who have a college degree who live in poverty they tend to be more likely to have health insurance. They're more likely to volunteer in a community. They vote in elections. They're less likely to receive federal aid. They're more likely to be innovative and help the productivity of our country. Just meaning the whole idea of having a college degree is great. And for most people, it's going to work out. And even for us as a society, we're better off because these people take on this debt and do this. But as you say, it is a looming problem for some. And I think that you can look at this in, in all different ways. First of all, just from a pure financial legal perspective, that if you go into default, your entire amount of your loan is due immediately, right? That makes no sense. Like, oh, I can't pay. Okay, well, then you have to pay me everything all at once, right? And, you know, the government can go after you with a lawsuit. Tax refunds can be intercepted. Wages can be garnished, that type of thing. You could be denied professional license. There was a well-known case. I don't really remember it all that well. I think it was up in New York, and some guy had $300,000 of debt. He had just finished law school, and the bar wouldn't admit him. And I might be getting some of these facts wrong, but there's a story, something like this. And basically, they were saying, you're in default on your debt, and you don't meet the standards to be a lawyer. Obviously, your credit can go down if you're delinquent. There's just the psychological burden of this debt. I'll tell you what I see. That really bothers me. And, and as I said, I teach a lot in the MBA program. And so for a top-ranked MBA program, and Texas is somewhere in the top 20, what happens is for out-of-state students, their full tuition is probably somewhere close to, and I don't know the exact numbers, but hundred grand, And that's probably not even including all of your living expenses and that kind of thing. And that's pretty common at top 20 business schools. And overall, these people are making a good investment in effect that they're going to do well, assuming they like what they're doing. But the point of this is what I see is this impacts your occupational choice, right? I mean, Definitely. You, look at all the, you look at all the top business schools and what happens? They're all going into investment banking, something you're familiar with. Yeah. They, they go into consulting, traveling every week for a lot of them. 
And now we also see a lot going into tech uh, on the West Coast, particularly, and that's everywhere. But certainly in Texas, we're seeing a lot of people go out to the Amazons, Googles of, of the world. And I think that's maybe a little bit more of a common job than banking and consulting. As you know, the hours are crazy, but I think a lot of people are going into them. They don't have the choice. They sort of say, look, if I have $100,000, $150,000 of debt, I've got to go do this for three years or five years. And I think that's really unfortunate. I tend to probably attract a lot of the students who will come talk to me who want to go into like nonprofits or things like that. It probably <laughs> seems the, the school socialist. But, um, <laughs> but the idea is, you know, it makes me sad that these people want to go out, do good things. They've got this education now, but they can't. And oftentimes... It's a myth when we tell ourselves, well, look, I'll go do this and I'll make this money and then I'll go do what I want to do. That's very hard to do. It's hard to go from making a lot of money to, oh, I'm going to go work at a nonprofit. So occupational choice is a big issue. I think related to that, this really affects our ability to become an entrepreneur. If I have a lot of debt, how is it that I can leave my job and start a company? And we need entrepreneurs. And I think that's just really a disaster. And you might say, well, I'll be an entrepreneur after six or seven years when I've paid off my debt. Well, six or seven years after you've paid off your debt, you know what you're going to do then? Then you're going to get married. Then you're going to start having kids. And, and then all of a sudden, it's how can I become an entrepreneur? And one of the things I'll just sort of say related to that with the student debt, just about becoming an entrepreneur, is I know a lot of people hate the Affordable Care Act, and some people love it and that kind of thing. But the one thing I tell everyone that you should be able to agree on is that ability to get insurance if you're not part of a big company is crucial to entrepreneurs. And so that's a related issue. You sort of think about that in today's world as we're talking about possibly dismantling that. Entrepreneurial behavior is crucial. Student debt impacts it. So does the ability to get health care. One more reason, and this might sound really big picture, but it's tremendously important, and I think a lot of people don't get this, but the more press that the cost of education gets, student debt gets, which should get press, it's a big issue, but what happens is the high cost of education and the threat of student debt discourages poor kids from going to college. First of all, one thing that's hard to even imagine for a lot of people who have been through this whole process is if you're growing up in a poor family, you have no idea that there's this full cost of tuition and there's this net cost and there's money available for you and that schools are trying to attract people from all diverse backgrounds. All you think of is, wow, school is so expensive. That's not something people like me do. Or you might hear that when the people come out of college, they owe $100,000 or $200,000. It's like, well, where am I going to get that kind of money? So what you're doing is you're really hurting society because ultimately, if people aren't reaching their potential, then we're all worse off. I am best off as a member of society if everyone else is doing as well as they can be. That's how our society is going to do best. I feel like a lot of people don't get that. No, I, you know, I think that we often have a scarcity mentality that it's like, well, if someone else gets something, then I'm not getting it. And the classic example, Dallas, is with students with jobs. I always tell students that it's stressful when you see all your friends getting a job and you're not, but you are so much better off because if they don't have a job, then they're still competing against you when this next employer comes to campus and is interviewing. But people have that scarcity mentality. People see someone else successful and they think, oh, that hurts me. 
And it's even worse if it's like your brother-in-law, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, that day, right? But I mean, seriously, you know, it's like you think about it. We do. We have a scarcity mentality when we just all be so much better off. If you were doing what you're supposed to be doing, like with your business now, we're better off, right? You're going to be paying more in taxes. You're going to be helping more people. You're going to be helping those people get ahead. And then they're going to benefit society. It's just, it's crazy, but people don't get it. And related to all this is that to the extent that this discourages people from going to college, particularly people from poor families, what it's doing is it's increasing the polarization of society. And you can look in the news every day now and see that that is a tremendous issue that is becoming more and more of a us versus them. And that is a terrible thing for our country. But I think this all adds to it. And I think cost of education, you can see it as much more direct, but student debt is also related to this issue. One other thing I should say is there are lots of other personal decisions that are being impacted by this. People's ability to get through school without having to work a job or how many hours they're working. They're delaying purchases in the economy, buying a house. People are putting off getting married, forming households. I always joke, I could just imagine if I had said to Jenny 20 years ago, I'd love to marry you, but I've already got these other liabilities, right? I mean, (laughs) you'd still be able to see her handprint on my face. (laughs) But we see that. I joke about it, but we see it, that people can't get married because they have all this student debt. And they're not forming households, and that's starting to pick up again. But that's crazy to think about all that. Anyway, sorry, I want to just get back to that. Yeah, no problem. So I'll go ahead and cut it off there in this week's episode, and then we'll come back next week and finish up the discussion with what we all can do about student debt on an individual and a societal level. Come back next week as we continue talking about student debt with Sandy Leeds, a distinguished senior lecturer at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Post Money Plan Podcast.